Welcome to the session of the Listener's Commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And this section really flows out of everything Paul has said up to this point. In fact, if you notice the very first line of verse 1, it says, For this reason. And that's just a great transitional phrase that basically tries to catch up everything Paul has said in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. Look at everything that God has done. Look at how he's blessed you with every spiritual blessing. Look at how he saved you by his grace and made you alive and raised you up with Christ and seated you with him. Look how he made peace between Jew and Gentile, made one new humanity. Look at all of that for this reason. And so... This, sec uh, this section flows out of everything Paul has said up to this point. The other thing that's important to notice before we jump into the details is this section begins for this reason. And then as Paul gets into his thought here in verse 1, he breaks off his thought for an extended di digression. Verses 2 through 13 is really a large interruption of Paul's thought. What he really wants to say is what he says in verse 14 and following, where he's going to offer another prayer for people. So Paul begins this uh, chapter with the intent of writing out another prayer for the Ephesians and the original audience based on everything he said, based on everything God has done. Here's how I pray for you. But... Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, and that then leads him to break off his thought and make sure they understand the significance of what's going on in his life. And so much of this chapter is actually a long interruption of thought. Not only that, verses 2 through 13 intends to explain uh, what Paul means by a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. What does that mean? Why is Paul a prisoner? Why is he a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles? And the specific reason he wants to explain that is to really help them see his ministry and especially his current circumstances of being in prison to see all of that from God's vantage point so that they won't be discouraged, so that they won't misunderstand what's really going on in Paul's life, that he he looks at his life, and even though he's in prison and things are tough and difficult, he sees it from God's vantage point, and he recognizes he's right at the heart of everything God is doing in the world. And in some regards, Paul is offering really a model to them and to us of how we ought to view our life, even when, maybe especially when things get hard, all right? So that's sort of an introductory overview to how this fits here. It's, it's an overflow and an outgrowth of everything he said that leads to a very long interruption before Paul resumes his thoughts in verse 14 and prays for the Ephesians and the original audience. With that then, let's look at some of the details. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 through 13 reads like this. For this reason, as we already noted, um, begins the section by capturing up everything he's already said, and he really wants to get to that prayer that he won't get to until verse 14. But for this reason, I, Paul, he says, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Notice Paul's self-description here. He says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Not so much a prisoner of Rome, 
not so much a prisoner of the Roman Empire, the Roman judicial system. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's self-understanding is so informative and so powerful. He looks at his life, and it would be easy to mope and pout and be full of self-pity and think of himself as, man, I want to be about ministry, and I want to be doing what God wants, but here I am, a prisoner of Rome, and da-da-da-da. No, that's not how Paul views himself. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He offered himself to Jesus when Jesus captured him on the Damascus Road. And whatever Jesus wanted, that's what Jesus got. And so Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus, not so much of Rome. And not only that, he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. Notice he's directly addressing the Gentiles. And it's really um, his imprisonment, his present imprisonment, is a direct result of his ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, much of the hardships Paul experienced in his ministry was a result of that. But this particular imprisonment, if we're dealing with the one that shows up at the end of Acts, uh, arose specifically um, and directly from his Gentile mission. Acts chapter 21 tells us that the Jews in Jerusalem were offended and upset because they saw him with a man named Trophimus, who, by the way, just happened to be from Ephesus. Catch that. He is an Ephesian and a Gentile. They saw him with Trophimus, the Ephesian Gentile, in Jerusalem and assumed that Paul was such a renegade, he would bring this Gentile and other Gentiles like him into the temple, which would be terribly offensive to the Jews. And so they made that assumption. They got enraged. They mobbed Paul, were about to lynch him when the Romans intervened, which through then a series of events led him actually to this present imprisonment in Rome. And so his, his present imprisonment is a uh, direct result of his Gentile mission. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, that my whole ministry is about that. Now, that leads Paul then to break off his thought where he was going, and he wants to make sure we understand what he means by he's a prisoner of Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. So in verses 2 through 13, Paul is going to describe how he views his ministry. He's going to describe what God has given him and the ministry he has. And again, this is incredibly powerful as we listen in really on Paul's own self-understanding, Paul's view of his ministry. It helps us who whether we serve Christ in formal ways as a paid vocational minister, or whether we serve Christ in some sort of volunteer capacity, this helps us understand perhaps the way we should think of ourselves as servants of Christ in whatever ministry he's entrusted to us. All right, So let's jump in and listen to how Paul describes it. He breaks off his thought, and in verse 2, then he begins to describe his ministry with these words. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Notice Paul describes his ministry as a stewardship of God's grace. What's that word stewardship mean? We don't use the word stewardship very often in, in our uh, language, our cultural context today. Uh, but think in terms of maybe in the older context, the idea of a steward over someone's house. A steward in someone's house was sort of like a manager of household affairs. Uh, 
And that's very much what this word means in this context. The word stewardship in Greek is oikonomia. We've already seen that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. And that word really has two senses, two uses in Greek language. One use would be for sort of the plan of management, how things are going to be managed. What's the plan for uh, managing a household? What's the plan for getting things done? So it could be the management plan, or it could be the manager himself, specifically the responsibility that that manager is given. So in this case, that's the way Paul is using it here, the responsibility that God has given to him in his household to be a manager, right? And so God had given him this stewardship, this trust, this responsibility, and he describes it as a stewardship of God's grace. Now, obviously, in some regards, that could mean like, I am a steward, I'm managing God's grace by sharing it with people and declaring that to people. And that's true. And certainly Paul's ministry did do that. But when you keep reading what he says here in this, this uh, interruption, this digression, it becomes clear that what Paul seems to have in mind as a stewardship of God's grace is specifically that it was God's grace that made this stewardship possible, that this stewardship was a gift of God's grace that Paul was not worthy of. That becomes very clear a little bit later as we keep reading. We will see that. And so I think that's the way we should read it here in verse 2, that Paul has been given a responsibility because God is so gracious and merciful that, that uh, God called Paul to himself and entrusted him with the responsibility specifically of being a ambassador, a minister to the Gentiles. And all of that will be described in greater detail in what follows. So if indeed he says you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. So this stewardship was given to me for you on behalf of you, meaning you Gentiles, who he just addressed in verse one. So this responsibility was given specifically for you. I'm, I'm entrusted with you and bringing the message of God to you. And then he says in verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Um, what does he mean by that? Well, probably that God revealed himself to Paul. We know that happened on the Damascus road. And that in that revelation of himself or revelation of Jesus there on the Damascus road, one of the things that was made known to him was that God wanted to welcome the Gentiles and wanted to use Paul to that end. So that was at least the beginning of this revelation that Paul is referring to here in Ephesians chapter 3, the revelation by which God made known to Paul the mystery, as he wrote before in brief. And when he says, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, it could be maybe something else he wrote to these people, but more likely what he means by, as I wrote before in brief, is, as I said earlier on in the letter, and Paul's already talked about the mystery in chapter 1, and then he's talked a little bit about the bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles, which is at the heart of the mystery. He talked about that in chapter 2, and so it's probably referring back to things he's already said earlier in the letter. So, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Now, by referring to this, meaning referring to what I wrote earlier, 
when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And Paul will go on here very shortly and be very explicit about what he means by the mystery of Christ. Here he's just encouraging the Ephesians to, as they read, they will understand, as he says, his insight into the mystery of Christ, his insight into the mystery of what God was going to do in the Messiah. That's what he means by that that Paul had a distinctive, unique understanding of God's plan for humanity in Christ. That's the insight into the mystery of Christ he's referring to. He goes on in verse 5 and says, which, this mystery of Christ, this unique understanding of the mystery of Christ, which, verse 5, in other generations and earlier previous generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, Paul's going to go on and be very clear what he means by the mystery of Christ. He'll very shortly here in verse 6 say exactly what it is, and it has to do with bringing the Gentiles in. This raises a question, and that question is, well, what does Paul mean by it was not made known in other generations to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets? The reason that question uh, emerges is because in Genesis chapter 12 and all throughout the storyline of the Bible, God's plan was to bless the Gentiles um, through God's people. That was always the goal. And so when he called Abraham to himself, it was that God might bless the nations and reverse the curse. And so the fact that God wanted to bless the nations had been made known in previous generation to the sons of men. Here's the thing that's distinctive that Paul is getting at, and it's really important that we read closely what he says in verse 5. When he says, uh, it was not made known as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. See, what had been made known was that God intended to bless the Gentiles. But what wasn't um, perfectly clear in that is that God intended to bring the Gentiles in as equals on the same ground, and that he intended to do it apart from the Torah. And so that was distinctive. That was unique. And so not that God wanted to bless the Gentiles, that was made known, but the way God wanted to do it and the extent to which God was going to do it, that had not been revealed as it had now been revealed to God's apostles and prophets in the Spirit, by the Spirit. As the idea of in the spirit there. At this point, Paul is going to be now very explicit, very clear on what exactly had been revealed to his apostles and prophets that really made this mystery perfectly clear, that made the mystery now an open secret so that everyone could know it. So here's specifically the details, the data, the information, the insight that had been revealed to Paul and to the apostles and prophets. Verse 6 says, to be specific, that is, namely, here it is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise. Notice the repetition of fellow, fellow, fellow. This is, these are all compound words in Greek that emphasize together with, together with, together with. Specifically, together with the Jews is the idea. And so what had been made known now that wasn't made known before? Well, specifically, that the Gentiles are going to come in as equals with the Jews, that they're going to be fellow heirs with the Jews together with them. 
that they are going to be fellow members of the body, um, that they are going to be fellow partakers of God's promise in Christ, so that God is forming one new humanity, one new body, as Paul has explained in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and that is now the revealed mystery, the disclosed mystery that Gentiles are going to come in as fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so all of this, this jointness is going to happen in Christ through the gospel. And then Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, of which, that is of the gospel, of which I was made a minister. When we hear the word minister, we often think in the formal modern sense of somebody who is a minister. They get paid to uh, preach the gospel, teach the gospel, or whatever it is. They are a minister. Um, the word minister literally in Greek is just the word for assistant, associate, servant. It's one of the words for servant here in the Greek language. And so, of which I was made a a minister means of which I was made a servant. I was made a servant of the gospel. Um, and I was made, this Paul says in verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And so notice how Paul views his responsibility and his role as a servant of the gospel. He says it was a gift of God's grace. It wasn't something I had any entitlement to. It wasn't something I had a claim on. It wasn't something I could demand. It wasn't something I earned. This, this opportunity to preach the gospel, this opportunity to serve you, the Gentiles, this was a gift, a gift specifically of God's grace, God's kindness and favor. And this gift was given to me according to the working of God's power. God's the one who did this. God's the one who brought this about. God's the one who made this possible. So it was a, a gift of God's grace. At that point, Paul just can't stop himself. He can't help himself. He has to go on and really uh, give more props to, give more uh, encouragement to, give more shout-outs for God's amazing grace. And so verse 8 is really Paul just pausing and, and saying, when I stop and think about the fact that God did this, that God in his grace gave me this sacred trust to be a servant of the gospel, I, I just am overwhelmed by that. That's really the spirit of verse 8. Listen to what he says. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. This is how Paul views his ministry. Notice it's emphatic to begin with there in verse 8. To me, to me. Like Paul is just amazed and shocked that God would do this for him. So to me, emphatic, he says. And then he describes himself the very least of all the saints. The very saints just means God's people, right? The very least of all God's people. This is a common bit of self-understanding we hear from Paul, and it shows up throughout his letters in various points. What does Paul mean by the very least of all the saints? Why does Paul think that? Well, the most 
clear place where Paul gives the details on that is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. You might read that, but there Paul describes how he was a persecutor of the church, and he was a violent aggressor, he says, and yet God, in his mercy and in his grace, gave him this ministry in spite of his opposition and his persecution of God's people. And that's what Paul has in mind. When Paul looks at his ministry, and when he says things like the very least of all the, th the saints, what Paul is really envisioning is, here I was. I was a violent aggressor. I was a persecutor. I was hostile to all that God was doing, and yet God called me to himself and entrusted me with this ministry. That's why Paul says he's the very least of all the saints. And when he says the very least of all the saints, it's actually kind of humorous. Paul almost seems to coin a word, not completely, but what he does is he takes a, a superlative and he adds a comparative to it. If you're familiar with your grammar, he takes a superlative and he adds a comparative to it. So you've got little, then you've got less, then you've got least. You can't go much lower than least, can you? Well, you can if you add a comparative to it, and that's what Paul does. So he goes, leaster is the, literally, is the idea. If we were to translate it literally, it's like, to me, the leaster of all the saints, right? Like the leastest of the leaster is the idea. So Paul looks at himself and he says, and you get down to the bottom, go a step lower, you'll find me. You'll find me. Uh, and he says, to me, the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Specifically, what was given? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. So his ministry is a gift of God's grace. And his ministry, in Paul's mind, boils down to to preach to the Gentiles, catch this, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable here is the idea. Of, you can't track it all out. You could never reach um, all the implications and all the glories. It's untraceable. It's untrackable. It's You could never get to the bottom of it all. It's unfathomable, uh, the riches of Christ. Like everything that God has done in Christ, it's so deep. It's so wide. It's so great. You'll never grasp it all. And I get the opportunity, Paul says, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And he goes on in verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And in other words, I get this opportunity to make it explicitly clear that God wants to bring the Gentiles in um, as one body, one family, that God has one new family formed of the Messiah, made of all people, all different races, all different tribes, Jews and Gentiles alike. I have been given this opportunity to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. In other words, the plan of how God is working out this mystery. That's that phrase, administration of the mystery. What's the plan for how God is working out the mystery? Well, I've been given the chance to actually make it abundantly clear how God is doing that, which for ages has been hidden in God. Um, and so, Though this wasn't known prior to Paul and the apostles, it wasn't a complete mystery because God knew it. God kept it to himself. He knew it. And now he's made it known. And Paul gets to share that and bring that to light. And then verse 10, he goes on and says, So that, so that, here is the goal. Here is the result of what Paul is doing. This is the kind of like the grand result of everything he's doing. So that the manifold wisdom of God 
might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? God's wisdom here is described as manifold, which means multifaceted. Look at it from various angles, and it's got all these facets and all these amazing little uh, details to it, so that the multifaceted, uh, manifold wisdom of God um, might be now made known through the church. Catch that, that the church, this gathering of God's people, all these different people from all these different backgrounds, um, all coming together as one family in Christ by the grace of God. The church, the, the people, don't think the building, don't think the programs, the people now get to be exhibit A. They get to be the megaphone of God's manifold wisdom. And who, who do they declare it to? to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the spiritual powers. Usually in Ephesians, the rulers and authorities are those spiritual powers that Jesus triumphed over. They're the hostile spiritual powers. They're the ones that somehow are involved in human affairs and um, turning and twisting human affairs against God and against God's good purposes. They're the ones that are creating division and hostility and hatred and war and famine and all the stuff that we see on earth that we know is wrong. Behind all that stands these rulers and powers in the heavenly places. That's the way it's used in Ephesians. And so Paul says the church, this one new family of God in Christ, is the the display of and the megaphone for God's manifold wisdom. Pause for just a second. Let me just offer a little implication of that. That when the church works together, when the church is unified, when the church is the body it's supposed to be, when we work together as one and we love each other, we display God's manifold wisdom. But when we're divided and bickering and fighting and arguing and hostile with each other, we're not a very good display of God's manifold wisdom because what God wants to do in Christ is bring us together, as Paul described in Ephesians 2, as one new family. And so the church is the display of God's manifold wisdom. Verse 11, he goes on and he says, this was in accordance with God's eternal purpose. This wasn't like something that just happened on accident or that God finally thought, maybe this is the way I should do it. No, this was God's eternal purpose. This was God's eternal plan, which... God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God planned this. He purposed this. Yes, it finally came on the scene here in Paul's day, right? It finally burst on the scene in Paul's day. But it's not like that's when it first was dreamed up. God dreamed it up way back in his eternal purpose. And God carried that purpose out in Christ. In whom? In Jesus, verse 12, catch this, we, meaning we all, all of us, you Gentiles, we all have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Those two words, boldness and confident access, speak of the nature of our relationship to God now as the people of God. Paul's point is that all of us, we now as one new family through faith in Christ, have boldness, this freedom of speech before the Father, this confident access, this freedom to approach God the Father. So we are ushered into the presence of God freely, boldly, confidently through faith in Jesus Christ, right? That we, we don't have to come haltingly or hesitantly 
We don't have to come with fear of reprisal, fear of rejection. It doesn't matter your background and where you come from. We have boldness and we have confident access to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And so we can talk freely to God. We can approach God freely. We are welcome in his presence because we are family in him. And so Paul ends this whole little digression by saying in verse 13, Therefore, therefore, I ask you, I urge you, do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. And this is really kind of the ultimate purpose of this digression. Why did Paul go off on this little tangent for a bit? Because here's Paul, little old Paul, um, who has been the one who helped get these churches started. And here's these little churches in, the, in Ephesus, right? This church maybe of a hundred people in Ephesus or whatever it is. Ephesus is a massive city. The church doesn't seem that powerful, doesn't seem that important, doesn't seem that significant. Here's Paul, their founder, and he's locked away in Rome under house arrest, and, and it would be so easy for them to grow discouraged and to wonder where is God in the midst of it all, or man, what's really going on here? And Paul's like, but you gotta, you got to step back and see God's great plan. And when you step back and you see God's great plan, and you get shoulder to shoulder with God, you realize, wow, that's what's going on. That's what's going on. Therefore, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf, for they're your glory. The fact that I'm suffering here and I'm in prison and all of that doesn't mean that God's purposes aren't being worked out. They are being worked out. And you, you, that church, you're, you're like exhibit A of God's manifold wisdom. And so don't be discouraged uh, at my tribulations, Paul says, for they are your glory. Now, as we wrap up this section, let me just offer this one little encouragement to you. When you come to a text like this, it's very personal. It's about Paul. It's about his ministry. And it, in some ways, it doesn't feel as applicable maybe to uh, you or me or our life or our situation because Paul is telling a story, but he's telling his story so that we might not be discouraged, right? Just as he didn't want them to be discouraged, he doesn't want us to be discouraged. So what I would encourage you to do when you come to a text like this and with this specific text is just sit here for a second and sit in the story it tells. Sit in the vision of God's great purposes and plan. Sit with Paul and, and feel what Paul feels and see what Paul sees as Paul describes his ministry sitting under a house arrest there in Rome. This is what Paul sees. This is what he feels. This is what... This is his perspective on his situation, right? So sit with him. Sit with his vantage point. And then take his vantage point and begin to look at your life. Begin to look at your circumstances. Begin to um, look at your situation in your church. And then begin to reflect on, this is what God is doing. Not just in Paul, but this is what God is doing in you and in his people still to this day. This is God's intent. This is God's dream. This is God's goal and his purpose for the church and for uh, those who serve Christ in any capacity. And so let this become your perspective for how you view, view your life, your ministry, your Christian service, whatever shape and form your Christian service takes. And then your church, as maybe unimpressive as it is, uh, realize that, that it is the manifold, it is the display of the manifold wisdom of God. Um, and do not be discouraged. 
Do not be discouraged. Let Paul's perspective become your perspective because Paul is getting shoulder to shoulder with God and looking at his life and his ministry from God's vantage point. And we should really do the same thing too.